Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the seventh Sunday of Easter, and this year it falls on May 16th. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Our deep dive this episode is on prayer. <laughs> yeah. Or, I, yeah. well, I feel like we're supposed to like prayer, given our jobs. Yeah, that's always a hard one for me, because it's that's actually n- not typically been the case for me. But Well... There have been times when prayer has been difficult, and there have been times when prayer has been less great than it could be, and many of those also <laughs> often involve other human beings, as many people's troublesome stories about faith do. But prayer, ultimately, is talking to God. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different ways to pray, and my standard comment is that the only wrong way to pray is that if you are trying to pray while you're driving and you have your eyes closed. Please don't do that. No, definitely not. Please don't get in a car accident because you're trying to pray. That's, like, the opposite of the thing that should be happening. Yes. Or, like, other things that you need to have your eyes open or your awareness available to you while you're doing, you know, if you're chopping onions and you're trying to pray, and uh, I could see that going badly. Oh, yeah, don't. When operating heavy machinery or dangerous (laughs) objects, do not pray with your eyes closed. You can pray! Just not with your eyes closed. (laughs) When operating a forklift in a forklift race that you are not supposed to be uh, participating in because your boss will get very angry and it violates all the safety protocols, actually just don't do that at all. You know, (laughs) let's just skip that part. Okay, are you speaking from experience there? Because I'm a little Not personal experience, but both my husband and my dad have worked in places with a physical plant factory kind of space in the building. And I've heard a lot of stories. <laughs> gotcha. So, so there are many ways that people choose to pray. Some people like to pray with their eyes closed, their hands together. Maybe the hands are folded or pointed flat up like the praying emoji. I don't really see that very often these days, except for the emoji. I know some people are taught that way. Pointed flat up like... Yes. Like, that is uh, actually... So the flat. thing that is frequently used as a praying emoji is actually a high five emoji. Oh, I suppose that works too, and probably makes more sense, because like I said, I really don't see people pray like that, but when I was a kid, in all of the illustrations in my children's books where people were praying, that is how it was illustrated. I have a picture from our church directory when they did directory photos of me praying like that. Other people prefer to pray with their eyes open, their head up, and their palms facing upwards towards, Mm -hmm. presumably, you know, God or the universe. That's a lot of how I do it. Uh, Yes. Uh, In college, I went to a Lutheran college that had a Wednesday night Eucharist service. Uh, So did I, but a very, very different Lutheran college with a Wednesday night service in Iowa. Yes. Although, oddly enough, now that I think about it, our chapel was mostly in blue. I'm not really sure what. Anyway. Um, I do actually like the color. It's, okay. blue. it's we not had my fault that other day people... in the calf. So. <laughs> when I was going to college uh, for like a year and a half, we had exactly one young woman who was probably about two years behind me in school, who would come to the Wednesday night service, and she would be the only one in the entire sanctuary to pray that way. And I never actually managed to talk to her because. We were usually in the balcony, and so I never managed to chase her down. And I didn't really want to embarrass her, but I just thought she was awesome. And wherever you are, ma'am, you are awesome. You should feel awesome. And that was very brave. So, good for you. Yeah, I always feel like a bit of an outlier, especially when people are like, please bow your heads with me. And I'm like, whoop, I'll close my head. (laughs) (laughs) So, is this a choice for holiness, or is this a choice for being contrary? Or both? (laughs) Or neither. It It is a, like... I, one time for Lent, I tried to keep my head bowed the whole time, and I just, like, a lot of, there's a lot of, like, psychological stuff that happens in prayer posture, and, sure. like, if you're consistently doing one particular posture or the other, and I wanted, and and it wasn't really helpful or healthy for me, and so then sure. when I started sure. doing the up, it was also, like, would open my body. Sure. I mean, it's it's a little bit back to the, like, like our last episode with ascension where it's like looking up and like there's god there's heaven in the corner of the room which is not accurate well god is everywhere so you were right it's just you weren't you know exhaustively right i mean yeah but so there's a like opening up into the like openness and instead of the like turning in and 
See, whereas my parents didn't know it at the time, but I was a kid with ADHD, so having me fold my hands and close my eyes meant that I was probably not, you know, destroying something at the time. That that makes some sense, too. Yeah. For another position you can take that is also another kind of historic church position to take while praying is to lay prostrate on the ground. So I know at camp when we taught prayer, one of the things was to, like, have kids, like, try it. It's amazing how much of a difference it makes for, like, kids that are just, like, running around and full of energy to then, like, lay splayed out on the ground and, like, to have, because you have the sensory impact of feeling the ground on, like, your whole, like, your whole body feeling the ground and, like, just having that focus. And I think, I don't know about all Catholic ordination, but I had a friend who was ordained in the, as a, and is a Norbertine. And I remember a picture from that where he was laying prostrate on the ground. So, still used today, at least in some places. Yes, and related to that, that is actually how, in medieval times, someone who was going to be knighted the next day would pray the night before. Hmm. The night before you became a knight. The night before knighting. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so you'd go to the chapel and you'd lay face down on the stone floor with your arms splayed out uh, in sort of a cross shape like Jesus. And you'd spend the next 12 hours or so awake and praying that you would be worthy of the honor and the responsibility that was about to be put upon you. Um, did you really stay awake for all 12 hours? Was there you someone were there to, to keep track? Now, that seems like a recipe for disaster for me. I Well, yes, I don't know that I would have been very good at it, but... Uh, I think sometimes you did have someone stay with you. I think also that there were some people who did not make it quite all night long, and they were probably knighted anyway because they had lots of money, but then that rumor kept going around. Uh, it, it shows up occasionally in literature about that period that, oh, he's one of those guys who didn't, you know, manage, he just slept through the night instead, but they knighted, knighted him anyway, and it's a sign of corruption, I guess. Huh. All right. So I don't know that that shows up in fiction from the time period, but it does show up in fiction about the time period. Mm-hmm. And also, some people like to sort out the reasons why they pray. Uh, praying before meals to give thanks for the meal you're about to have is still fairly common. Uh, although back in Martin Luther's day, uh, it was also standard to pray after the meal as well. Mm-hmm. At camp, we prayed twice before the meal and once after the meal. We had we had a sung grace and a spoken grace before and then a sung grace after. Oh, okay, cool. At the camp I grew up going to, we eventually gave up on the spoken grace part, and we all did a grace outside before we went into the dining room. <laughs> and then they just let us eat. And that actually saved a lot of hassle. Uh, yeah, we, yelling. yeah, that makes sense. Praying the hours is a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline, as they're also sometimes known, of interrupting your daily life to pray at set times of day uh, and night. People in various religious orders uh, do this, but also some Christians choose to do this as a part of their regular, ordinary, like out in the world life. Uh, though often in that case, it's more like three times a day instead of the ancient traditional seven times per 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Or like particularly for Lent or Advent sure. or some special season of the church year. Yes, I often encourage my confirmation students to try it for a week just to see how it goes. And usually uh, these prayers are sort of set prayers written in advance uh, and also usually involve some Bible readings. But there's generally a chance to add in your own current prayer concerns as well. Mm-hmm. Also, Kay and I are both Christians and Lutherans. Obviously, we've said that a variety of times on this podcast. We have a lot in common. <laughs> but there are also really robust prayer practices in other faith traditions. Um, specifically, the two that come to mind most for me are Muslims who have a practice of stopping whatever they're doing at five different points in the day and praying. So one is getting up to pray, right? Getting up before yes. dawn to pray. But they're set times throughout the day And they're set not based on 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., but based on the sun is like the based on the schedule of the sun. So sometimes in the summertime, there's kind of a bigger spread of time throughout the day that you do it. And in the wintertime, I think there's a smaller time because the sun rises and sets at different times. And then within Judaism, I was talking to a local rabbi, and we were both on a panel. 
about spirituality and queerness and stuff. And she was talking about that when it comes to prayer, Judaism actually has a prayer for like everything. Oh, yes. Well, actually, they usually have like 18 prayers for everything is my understanding, because someone has always said, you know, I don't like this version so much. I'm going to write my own, which is well, also. <laughs> okay, yeah. And also, like, they have to have, like, no matter what you're doing, there is a prayer that you could say. When I did CPE, my CPE partner was an open Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and so before we ate, he would go to, like, kind of go off to the side to pray and at different points throughout the day, um, depending on, like, how our schedule was. Sure. He would pray, and it's always just been, like, this beautiful practice. Yes. I do believe that I've had a couple of Jewish people tell me that much like Christians like to play stump the pastor with asking the pastor weird questions about the Bible to see if they have an answer for it. The game of asking your rabbi, is there a prayer for this weird and unusual thing that happens, uh, is totally a thing that happens. Nice. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Of course, Christians and also other religions practice praying in groups. Uh, The version of this, I guess, I'm most personally familiar with is what we call the prayers of intercession or the prayers of the people uh, Mm -hmm. during a worship service. Mm -hmm. Which takes a lot of different formats. Some of them are pre-written prayer petitions with some space to throw out names and that sort of thing. The congregation I serve does prayers of gratitude and prayers of joys and concerns and it's free time for people to share and then at the end the pastors summarize in a pastoral prayer and i have always really appreciated doing pre-written prayers for those because i know that i will forget things otherwise (laughs) and so having everything written down is the best way although that doesn't always work because sometimes you get all verklempt over one prayer and then you can't read the name in the next prayer and that's actually been a problem before. <laughs> I just take, I also take notes. Yes. And of course, then there's praying informally alone uh, when you feel like it or when something seems to come up. Or one of my favorite examples is uh, when you see an ambulance pass by, you can say a prayer for whoever is in the ambulance, uh, whether mm-hmm. they are a healthcare worker or someone who's currently in crisis. Yep. I have heard people do that. And I occasionally do that of when an ambulance or a fire truck pass by. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, for many of us, uh, singing hymns is a type of prayer as well. Mm-hmm. Song is prayer. Or praise songs, or whatever your personal favorite version is. Mm-hmm. I also really love the practice of praying in color. It's also called doodle prayers. It comes yes. from the book Praying in Color by Sybil Macbeth. But I have never been one who really resonates with the, like, here, God, is my list of worries. Thanks. And so praying in color is a more focused, centered time. Um, And so when I pray in color, I'll get like a paper and some nice colored pencils and stuff, maybe light a candle, maybe have music playing. But then I'll take one specific person or concern and just write a one or two word, write it down in one or two words, and then just spend time doodling and coloring in all around it. And that time is time focused on... Time with God, focused on that person, but without the, like, worry list. And sometimes I'll do it with, like, a couple different things and then make something like a prayer icon. I've done it with for people's babies when they're having babies and I pray for their babies and send, like, a bookmark with their babies or other things, which I really like. So that's, that's a fun way to pray for me. You can also do a practice called praying the news. Yeah. Part of that comes from the idea of, like, for preachers holding the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. But either before you open the newspaper or the news website, to just say a prayer, to to open that time for God to be present with you and for God to be a witness with you to what is going on in your community and in the world and the needs of your community and the world. And then as you go through reading the articles, I think this was especially powerful for me and continues to be especially powerful on days and weeks when it feels like there's never good news to be yeah. able to to really have an openness to where God is calling us, where God is calling me when I'm reading articles. What is God up to? Are there places where I'm noted where I would have missed God, but because of how I'm reading the newspaper, I'm not. Those sorts of things. Right. 
would also throw in there, I've heard the phrase praying for someone used in a few different ways. Sometimes you're praying like for their health, that they'll get better or at mm -hmm. least to be out of pain. Uh, sometimes you're praying that God will encourage them in something. And, you know, sometimes when you read the newspaper, you, you feel called to pray that someone will change their mind mm -hmm. or become a Repent. better human being or... <laughs> Yes. Uh, and so when you say that you're praying for someone, that can actually mean a number of different things. It's true. Uh, and when we say you should pray for everyone, that includes all of those various options. Yes. You know? With the caveat that... Well, yes, we, we can pray for everyone. We can, we can pray for everyone. Yes, but also the caveat that I think as a queer person in particular, there are plenty of people who, when those of us who are queer are visibly queer... There are yeah. people who take it upon themselves to pray for us in public or otherwise, or ask to pray for us because they think that we are wayward. And that is unnecessary prayers. If you're going to try and do that, maybe pray for yourself that your own heart changes. Yeah. Also, you're probably not listening to this podcast, so meh. <laughs> but when we talk about prayer for people, and especially prayer for people to change, it's prayer for people like a governor who completely abandons all of her responsibilities during a global pandemic. Prayer to love and care for the vulnerable. Prayer to, to be compassionate and generous. Uh, absolutely. Prayers for justice. Yes. I have also certainly heard some stories of people uh, turning incidents like those around and mm -hmm. offering to prayer for the person instead and praying a very different prayer than that person expected and if you have the energy for that that's great but of course not everyone does yeah not required so, of you absolutely not um, and in fact i'm reminded of a quote from mother Teresa. on that note uh she said something along the lines of i don't know that this is exactly word for word mm -hmm. uh, i used to pray that god would feed the hungry or do this or that but now i pray that god will guide me to do whatever i'm supposed to do what i can do i used to believe that prayer changes things but now i know that prayer changes us and we change things mm -hmm. yeah and i've really appreciated it. yeah and i think that that also kind of leads into the idea of prayer as protest right yes at one point during the protests last year there was a curfew set in place for, I believe, Polk County, which is the county that Des Moines, where I live, is located. And, of course, the curfew had exceptions for religious services, for worship services. And so one of my friends and I went, because we had been supporting the protests, went, as we usually did, in our collars, in our stoles, and we prayed during the protest. Um, and and in general, the protests were prayers, right? The protest was putting our bodies where our values are and showing up where God was showing up and at work. And in that way, it is a very embodied prayer. And sure. also to be explicit about prayers so that then at any point, if anybody got in trouble, it was a prayer service. And Absolutely. that was accurate. And if you're looking for further reading on spiritual practices or disciplines in general. I know the book Prayer by Richard Foster has been on my to-read list for approximately forever, and unfortunately my to-read list is currently longer than I am tall. <laughs> but uh, also, if you want to look at additional spiritual uh, practices or disciplines, he also has a book called Celebration of Discipline. Um, I would really suggest reading the paper unabridged version of that. I did at one point listen to an abridged audiobook of that and that was much less helpful. I basically never advocate for abridged versions. I, I well, don't yes. think they should exist. Generally. I Sometimes they can be helpful, but in that particular case, they kept all of the, the stuff that was, this is why it's important, and they got rid of the stuff about, this is how you can be creative with it and adapt it to your life. And that was not helpful and wound up sounding very judgy indeed, and that was not what Foster was going for. But I feel like sometimes, uh, as Emily put it earlier, sometimes prayer can turn into, here's a list of my concerns, and here's a list of what I want, God, and okay, great, thanks, have a great day. And <laughs> if you want your prayer to expand a little bit more and get a little bit more creative and to become, hopefully, a two-way conversation uh, that also involves listening for God, uh, sometimes doing a little reading on the subject by different people uh, can be helpful. Yep. That is true. Now, as we dive into our readings for this episode, our first reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, and verses 21 through 26. 
After Jesus' ascension, the eleven remaining apostles choose a twelfth follower of Jesus to replace Judas, who has died. So one of the main themes in this passage is new leaders and how to choose new leaders. And one of the things that comes up here, because we know that while Matthias is chosen, God has plans for Saul, who will become known as Paul. Yes. Later, and they just didn't. They didn't take that into account. They were doing what they thought they had done, they needed to do, and they picked a new leader based on past experience. And the reality is that past experience does not necessarily qualify you for something, nor does lack of past experience disqualify you. Hashtag young pastor life. Absolutely. And there are Bible verses about that, too. Mm -hmm. I would, however, throw in there, I mean, we don't hear a lot more about Matthias, but we don't also know anything bad about him. He Mm -hmm. might have been perfectly good at it. So He might have been fine, but, like, Paul gets lifted up as the one that, that's how I remember Well, Paul also wrote a lot of things down. Well, yes, obviously. But the way that I... Matthias just wasn't a letter kind of person. No, yeah, but the way that I had learned about it was, like, that the 11 were like, oh no, we have to fill this spot. And God was like, I have someone else in mind. And they just didn't bother. Right? Like, it's not like they're casting lots See, between Matthias, Justice, and somebody else. And like, some other plan. It's, these are the two options, God. Pick one of them. I was reading on this text earlier, and I read a very interesting idea that I, I didn't really grow up with an understanding of like why they did this. It's just, okay, Judas is dead. I guess we need someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I did not grow up with that understanding. And I was uh, doing some reading on this earlier and ran into the idea that they chose a 12th because they believed they still needed the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that choosing the 12th wasn't necessarily wrong. Once they start, you know, being martyred very quickly afterwards, they they don't choose another 12th once the others start to pass away. But at the time, it seemed like the right thing to do, and we don't really have proof it wasn't. We don't have proof it wasn't, and we don't have proof it was. We just have nothing else about Matthias for the rest of the thing. But... I mean, sometimes that's a good sign. Like, sometimes no news is good news. Not when you're, starting a new movement and trying to, recruit lots of people. I was thinking about this, and I'm in the middle of rereading the Gracing series because a fourth book has come out, so I'm in Bitter Blue right now, and Bitter Blue's advisors were all her father's advisors. Well, the problem with that is her father was a super creepy, manipulative, evil king. Uh Uh-oh. So (laughs) the advisors he had were, like, officially deemed as qualified because they had been doing the job for so long, but actually, like, aren't necessarily qualified to yeah. do the work and like because they were that close they were that close to his like brain washing grace power thing yeah and so there's just this like that's the aspect of like just because you've been doing it doesn't mean you should be doing it yeah and just because you're properly educated for it does not mean that you have the right intentions yeah and they definitely weren't properly educated for it because one of them is actually a medicine person and a healer and not but that was that gets more into the like creepiness of King Lech, So Okay, sure. When we reach verse 15, we read, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons. So the Gospels generally mention that Jesus had crowds around him and followers with him, and there were the disciples who weren't always numbered. But sometimes we numbered the main 12 disciples, but we don't really get numbers for like the other groups, right, very often, Mm -hmm. unless Jesus happens to be feeding them lunch. Always a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know, you want to know how many people you've got to, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Catering needs the numbers. Exactly. Do not anger catering. <laughs> Rules that you learn fairly early in life. Don't mm-hmm. mess with the people who fix your food. Mm-hmm. But here, we actually get a number. And there's this kind of sense, I think, in this verse of, yes, you have all totally always been here, and I absolutely know you, and I know most of your names from Peter, that you also sometimes get in various scenes in fiction. Uh, mm. I know that we have commented on that happening in Harry Potter occasionally, although, of course, Harry didn't always know their names when new characters popped up, because Harry didn't really know b- very many people's names at all. Mm-hmm. But 
I mean, even the Bible cannot give us a, an exhaustive list of every detail that, of what happened and who was there and who wasn't. And so sometimes you get these moments of, of course, all of these people have always been here and were totally involved in the church and are well known to all of these other people. We just haven't mentioned them yet. That makes perfect sense. And in the Buffy series, they first introduced Buffy's sister uh, in a very similar way. Sure, she's always been here. Of course, <laughs> we find out later. That, well, sort of. Maybe not really. So, yeah. Gotcha. Speaking of hidden information. Yeah. In verse 21, we read that Peter says, So one of the men who have accompanied us throughout the time that Jesus went in and out among us, and he's talking about who they're going to pick to be the next leader. And actually, the Greek in this case is the Greek for man, not people. So, Anthropos. Yes. Greek has two is frequently translated as man, but actually means human. But this is actually the word for man. And it just was, you know, one of those points where I was like, this is sexist language. And they're like, why have they decided that it must be a man? When in fact, who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Who were the first disciples of the resurrected Christ? Who were the first preachers in the early church? That's right. Mary Magdalene, all the women. Yes. So... I just needed to take this opportunity to remind everyone of the best Lord of the Rings quote ever, where Eowyn is talking to the Ringwraith dude, and he's like, no man can kill me, and she pulls off her helmet and goes, I am no man! Stabs him in the face. <laughs> Which times. may vaguely resemble the emotion that you have when you read this passage and you deal with a sexist language and you dream about stabbing someone in the face. Yeah, I don't actually want to stab Peter in the face, but no. I'm feeling like... Like one of those Nerf swords or something? Maybe, that, yeah. yeah. Or like Jim with a Nerf gun so it sticks to his nose. Yes, yes, those discs. I'm, I'm feeling pretty... You know, if you use the Nerf guns that have the little discs, you can actually shoot someone in the forehead to make a cross if you turn it 90 degrees. Ah. You, I mean, you have to kind of soup them up to make it hit that hard to actually make a little, you know, noticeable red mark, but still... No, from experience again. Mm. Uh, no, actually, I was never allowed to play with those toys. I can't imagine why. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In verse 23, we read, So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. So I love that the first guy is not only named, but we get his actual name plus two separate nicknames. Right. Do any of the women in the Bible have nicknames? We'll never know. We but only this guy know gets like a fraction of them, of, them <laughs> of their actual names, let alone any nicknames. And like when in doubt, guess that, uh, that they were named Mary. But aside from that, <laughs> yeah. And then it turns out that they went with the other guy after they bothered listing this guy and both of his nicknames. And then they just gave us Matthias's name. Was there only one Matthias and like... 47 different Josephs? I, I don't know. Why I mean, did they bother making it so clear exactly which Josephs that we're talking about? I mean, I was thinking of, like, well, I wouldn't necessarily want to pick Barsabbas because it sounds so close to Barabbas. If you don't know him. Which... Right? And if you know, someone's name isn't Joseph, that was, like, Mary's husband, and so you want someone who is unique and in their own, and the only way to get there is to get all the way to the point where he's called Justice. And then it sounds like Latin. That's a whole other issue. Wait, so are... Maybe that's it. Maybe Joseph is the Hebrew, Barsabbas is the Greek, and Justice is the Latin. Possibly. I don't think they mean the same thing. Not that Justice they... actually refers to the Latin term for justice, and Joseph means something else that I don't remember. Not that they mean the same thing, but like that... But... Like... Oh, in... you would have different... Yeah, like in Judaism, people, um, when they're born, have a are given a name, and also have a Hebrew name. Yes. So, like, that okay. sort of thing, where you have, like, one name per language. Sure. Well, and I was thinking, maybe what they really wanted to do was to be very specific about which Joseph they're talking about, because probably there's a whole bunch of Josephs, right? So mm -hmm. they wanted to point out, no, actually, we specifically mean this guy. Like, if they all had multiple nicknames to tell them apart, and they wanted to be clear that it, we were talking about Joseph Barsabbas Justice, and not talking about Joseph Barsabbas David, because Joseph Barsabbas David was a jerk, and no one would want to add him to the disciples, right? 
I mean, we don't know. Or maybe he was just really disappointed that the the lots didn't get cast for him, and so the author of uh, the Book of Acts felt really bad for him and decided to increase his word count a little bit uh, to to make him feel better. I I don't know, but it, it feels a little odd, and I'm kind of wondering uh, along those routes if uh, maybe the reason why Joseph wasn't chosen was because he was actually a member of the People's Front of Judea, but not but not the Judean people's front, because those people are wrong. I do not get that reference. Life of Brian? I don't think I've actually ever seen The Life of Brian. Oh, we'll have to fix that. There are uh, a number, and actually an ever-increasing number, of various uh, freedom fighters in Israel in Life of Brian. And two of them are the People's Front of Judea and the Judea uh, People's Front. And they seem to generally be going for the same things, but wow, do they hate each other because of tiny little slights that have happened over the years. Oh, and like with the Samaritans. Yeah, so, Gotcha. So keeping your names in in order can be very useful, which might be why they gave us all of those extra nicknames for this just When I was looking at verse 26 and the casting of lots that falls to, to Matthias, I was talking to friends of the podcast, Pace and Susanna. They were helping me prepare for this episode. And both of them like thought of Harry Potter, but in different ways. But there is the sense, right? Like there's the sense of the Goblet of Fire as a casting of lots. Sure. But also, Susanna had mentioned the this particular casting of lots between Matthias and Joseph is like a toss-up. It could easily be either one of them. They both have been deemed as qualified based on them being men and hanging out with them, I guess. Like, those seem like the only two qualifications, but, like, whatever. They're, like, the two qualifications. That's about as good of qualifications as Neville and Harry have when they're born. (laughs) And their birthday. (laughs) You're born at the right time. Congrats. Astrology. Yay. Yeah, I well, I think also the it was implied that the 120 gathered were, like, leaders of the church, like, well-known and trusted and so forth. It just but, said that they were believers. But, so it's, it, but it was one of those things, right, where it could have easily been, in Harry Potter, it could have been Neville Longbottom and the yes. whatever. For all we know, there was somebody standing right next to Joseph and Matthias whose name was Neville. Exactly. And we'll never know yeah. because... Exactly. People write them because people write them out of history. Yeah, because we needed both of Joseph's nicknames instead. Yes. No. <laughs> that makes perfect but, sense. But it is this idea of, like, there are those moments where it's not that one person, it's not that Matthias was destined to do this thing necessarily. It was that the cast, ha- that between the two of them, they were equally qualified. Neville and Harry were equally qualified. Yes. And the, and ca- the lot that was cast was the other choice. one. I'm just saying. But, right? there's, yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. It would have been a whole different life for both of them. And I'm quite certain that that fanfiction story has been written multiple times. Uh, Yes, yes, I certainly hope so. I'm confident that it has. Our second reading today is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. The writer of 1 John assures those who believe in Jesus as God's child and God's witness that they have the gift of everlasting life in Jesus Christ. I do want to take a moment here to point out, this is kind of a weird choice for the lectionary to make in terms of splitting up Bible verses, uh, and I personally would have included these in last week's selection from First John chapter 5, uh, and had that as one big reading instead of having this as a second shorter reading, because these sound very different when you separate them from those earlier verses. So if you read this lection and you say to yourself, yikes! which I did, uh, go back and read those earlier verses and put in context, they make a lot more sense. So True. And so one of the themes for this passage was the idea of, like, if you believe, not in a, like, if you believe, you get all these great things, and if you don't believe, all these bad things, as you just mentioned, but a reassurance for those who do believe, and also a power. And so the idea of, like, Tinkerbell, right? If you believe in fairies, <laughs> clap your hands and then you won't die. You know, I really think we don't mention Tinkerbell nearly often enough in this podcast. Right? I watched <laughs> I watched Hook a couple of weeks ago and it had been the first I was watched it for River Reviews that I do and it had been the first time in a very long time that I had seen it. It, it is so mm-hmm. When we reach verse 9, we read, "If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater." So generally, this works out 
okay when you're talking about God, God's testimony more seriously than taking humans' testimony. It works less well when you're using the phrase word of God that is commonly used uh, in Spanish communities, uh, talking about when the creators of a fictional universe will expand further on that fictional universe to tell you more details about how it works or uh, what happened in the past or something like that. And sometimes they make these comments kind of offhandedly and not really thinking about them in advance. And sometimes that means that truly weird and bizarre things get said. Or sometimes you just don't have the context and they just sound bizarre. Uh, like some of the things that George Lucas has said over the years about how Star Wars and that universe works. I've got to say, George, I agree with Carrie Fisher and disagree with you on this one. Uh, there are the supportive garments of your choice, uh, whether they are bras or not, uh, in space, and you are allowed to wear them if you want. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Also, when we talk about Word of God, just a note, this gets a little confusing for some people because they interpret the Bible wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about the Word of God... One thing to be clear that in a not fanish, not talking about George Lucas talking about Star Wars kind yes, of way. Yes, when we're talking yes. about like Christianity the and the Bible, <laughs> when we yes. talk about the Word of God, the Word of God is not actually the Bible. The Word of God is Jesus. Primarily, yes. And the Bible is the way that I like to talk about it and the way that I have heard it talked about. And the Bible resonates. says that Jesus is the Word of mm -hmm. God the Bible's, many, many times. Right? But it's that the Bible is the cradle and holds for us who, you know, don't exist in the same time and space as the physical embodied incarnation, incarnation sure. of Jesus. That the Bible is the cradle for the word of God, which is Jesus. Yes. Or I believe the standard Sophia. Lutheran teaching of this, which may or may not apply to your life out there, is that the word of God has multiple ways that it is expressed by God. The first and most important will always be Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then uh, secondarily, there is also the, the preaching inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, whether that preaching is by someone who, you know, does that for a living or not. But the Holy Spirit can speak through anyone and inspire anyone. And that is the second expression. And then the third is Bible, which does not change and therefore cannot adapt to the changing universe. Yep. Emphasis on the first one. Yes, big emphasis. When we read the Bible, we read it through the lens of Jesus for that reason. Speaking of being Lutheran, in verse 10, we read, Those who believe in the child of God have the testimony in their hearts. Shout out to Pace for pointing out that this is Luther's third use of the law. And I won't get into all of Luther's uses of the <laughs> law because that would be its own deep dive. Um, and maybe we'll have Pace, who is... Uh, theologian and studying Luther beyond again for that but yes. Luther's third use of the law which has been controversial of whether or not it exists blah 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 it is decided it exists is that the law is written on our hearts and so in that sense it guides our actions in that way is resonates with this passage of those who believe in the child of God have the testimony in their hearts have it yes motivating their every action and being Absolutely. And the next verse, in verse 11, we read, and this is the testimony. So it's written on our hearts, and here's what it is. God <laughs> gave us everlasting life, and this life is in their son. So sometimes some people translate the word that I translate as everlasting as eternal. So if you hear eternal, everlasting is what I learned in our Preaching John class in particular, and it has always stuck with me as a more... I think it makes more sense, it's more understandable, and it's less of a in this other place, in this other time after we die, and it's a like sure. continuation of like the life that we have continues. It lasts forever. And gets better. But yes. Presumably, but that's exactly the thing because whenever I hear everlasting, I think of the book Tuck Everlasting. And everlasting yes. life is not always great, particularly here on Earth when we are full of mess-ups and mistakes and harm and evil and injustice. But presumably the everlasting life that is in their son, God's Son, Jesus, is 
better than just regular old everlasting life on Earth. Yes, there are a number of differences. <laughs> As you might expect. <laughs> because it turns out that Tuck Everlasting is not actually Christian scripture. And that's what? probably good. I- <laughs> no way! Truth, it's fiction. Fiction, people, yeah. fiction. Gotta love it. And then in verse 13, we read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So one of the things that it's important to remember, and I feel like we say this a lot, but I really don't feel like we hear it enough in the world, so I'm going to say it again. One of the things that it's important for us to remember as we read the Bible is that there are many different authors within the Bible who wrote these various scriptures down, and each one of them had their own goals and their things that they were specifically focused on. The Bible is not a systematic description of exactly what we should do, who we should be, and precisely what we should believe about everything there ever has been or will be. That would be an extremely long document. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I personally am grateful that I don't have to read it because it also sounds awfully boring. The Bible is much more interesting than that, for the most part. Uh, Instead, we have the Bible, uh, and it is the writings of a number of different people, uh, almost certainly most of them were men, uh, who were inspired by God. It was also a collective of people. Like, Well, some of them were together at, at similar times, sure. And some of them were together at different times, but all worked on Genesis. You know, like the Yahwist writers, the priestly Yeah, Yeah, but I, do we really need to get into that? No. Right? I, I just, it's not that I don't want to, but okay. we are running. Okay. Yeah. Now, were you agreeing with me, or were you saying my name in a sad and despondent tone? Um, oh, I was... <laughs> I was agreeing with you. That's fantastic. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, the authors of the Bible were certainly inspired by God, but they still have their own backgrounds and their goals and such, and therefore those things do still seep into what they decided to write down in the end. Uh, So here we see that this author of 1 John is really, really focused on convincing people who believe in Jesus that, yes, you do have eternal life. You don't need to worry about that. Like, that is the thing that he's trying to do with this letter. And because of that, he may be paying a little less attention to things when talking about other stuff uh, or when other things come up. Uh, Much like how uh, in the novel Codename Verity, the narrator is so focused on telling Verity's story that we really only get glimpses of the narrator's own life and background throughout the book. Our final passage for this episode is John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Jesus prays for his followers in thanksgiving for them and asking God to protect them before being arrested and crucified. So the ongoing theme for it our Gospels this Easter has been this whole final farewell discourse that Jesus is in. And so as this final farewell discourse comes to a close, the theme of closing monologues also uh, makes sense. And the places of final monologues, the ones that are particularly well-known and lifted up, are Buffy's final monologue before slash as she's dying. Yes, Susanna, who came on for our Advent for Buffy extravaganza, is the one who pointed this one out to me. And also the Twelfth Doctor, Capaldi, when he's doing his final monologue before regeneration, there are these moments of, like, imparting all of the wisdom and also doing the, like, I love you, I want you to be safe and protect, right? Buffy is telling her sister to protect all her friends. The Doctor is telling the next Doctor to protect all of the people, um, all of those things. And so it's just this like beautiful, beautiful closing monologue. Yeah. And then as we dive into the verses, in verse 9 we read, Jesus says, I am asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. This actually reminded me of a book that I read the other month that's The Wishing Tree. And it's about this tree that's a wishing tree in Brooklyn and goes through like so much of their life is like the story of this neighborhood that grows and changes and new people come and old people come and like different and like the diversity of the community changes as the like immigration trends change and stuff. And throughout it all, this wishing tree like has this like, these are my people and I care for them and I provide for them. And, and also all of the like, 
animals in the tree and around the tree and stuff who have fantastic names. Cool. Yeah, and, and it's this beautiful thing, but there's not, like, a ton of, like, intervention. And then there's a point at which, like, there's a little bit of intervention and things get exciting. But this, like, these are my people. These are the ones I care about and work on behalf of. And this is my community. Sure. I read verse 9, and I went in a slightly different direction. Uh, I thought of Jesus uh, as specifying that he's talking about these particular people. He's not talking about the whole world that Mm. uh, Jesus came to save, but specifically we're talking about his friends. Uh, And this is one of the few moments uh, that he seems to jump from, uh, to use terms that we used last week, uh, agape love to philos, Mm. or uh, Mm -hmm. love. Love that is selfless and applies to the whole world, uh, as opposed to love that uh, is warm and fuzzy and applies to just a few. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I like to think that this is proof that needing to save the world doesn't mean that you can't have friends while you do it. uh, And it also doesn't mean that your friends can't know that you're saving the world when you do it. Unlike the early seasons version of Barry Mm -hmm. Allen from the Flash TV show, who was all about lying to the people he supposedly loved, which is a trope that is really ancient and tired and needs to be mm-hmm. retired because... Especially for superheroes. The, yeah, oh my goodness. So, Spider-Man. if you're listening out there and you have recently discovered that you actually have superpowers, please don't do this. Yeah, tell your friends. <laughs> it's because not worth it. eventually someone figures out that it's you, and if your friends don't know to take extra precautions because they're at risk, if they don't know that they yeah. can support you, then they're going to be targeted, and then you will actually lose them all. Yes. Like, by all means, be careful about it and choose the people you trust, but still, it, the people you trust need to know. Mm-hmm. I might still be a little angry with Barry. But That's fair. I quit watching the show for a reason. So. <laughs> also fair. Also, I think that that's, like, good wisdom, larger... Like, there are legitimate reasons not to tell the world things. And... Yes. But if you have people you trust... Then you should then tell them. Please trust yeah, them. Yeah, because secrets make people sick. Yeah. In verse 11, Jesus says, And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy caretaker, protect them in your name that you have given me. So that they may be one as we are one. And this is this beautiful moment of care and protection. And um, Pace and Susanna and I were talking about this particular, like, these verses and this passage. And, like, had all of this different stuff from Lord of the Rings, right? Whether it's, like, Gandalf's concern and compassion when he hears Frodo's voice say, I will take the ring ever so quietly while everyone's arguing and then slowly a little louder and then Gandalf is just like heartbroken right but I really loved this particular piece that's in this space like in the world of Middle Earth the hobbits are the ones who like really don't belong don't belong to the rest of all of the things going on they're kind of their own enclave yeah and out of the hobbits and out of the hobbits that go on the journey Sam in particular is the character of persistent hope and he's the character yes. of protection, right? He again yes. and again and again comes back with hope and with protection. Protection for Frodo, protection for the ring. Even to the point where when Frodo tells him to leave, he leaves, not because he wants to, but because he respects Frodo and is like, okay, the way that I like send my hope with you, the way that I protect you is by respecting your wishes. Yeah. And then once he figures out what exactly happened, he, like, comes back and he's like, yeah. hold up. <laughs> I like to think of Samwise Gamgee as one of the best incarnations of the opposite of toxic masculinity ever created. Yes, Sam is fantastic. Yeah. And then, finally, we reach verse 12, which says, I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, I'm going to, going to admit that while Emily, when they are looking for inspiration for this podcast, goes to their friends, which is a perfectly reasonable and probably intelligent choice, <laughs> I very often wind up wandering TV tropes, and usually that actually works out pretty well. But in this particular case, when I was wandering TV tropes, I wound up going down a rabbit hole of apocalyptic stuff that was really quite depressing. Ooh, so yeah. this is where I went, but it's not particularly depressing, it, but... It was inspired by that, um, which is when we read this verse and we read, uh, you know, the Gospels uh, and the various stories that explain exactly how the whole thing with Judas went down. You know, 
the church isn't actually very good about talking about the idea, uh, well, about Judas at all Truth. at first. And then also this whole idea that Judas was destined to betray Jesus to Jesus' death. It's never really explained exactly how that was supposed to work in the Bible. Like, yes, there was a verse that said that the Messiah would be betrayed, but it, it wasn't all that specific. So scripture, yes, is being fulfilled that Jesus would be betrayed. But how did Judas get picked out to be the one? Like, why couldn't it have been a group of people who betrayed Jesus? Mm -hmm. Or betrayal can sometimes happen by accident. Mm -hmm. or, or a system. Was this... Yeah, or was this a self-fulfilling prophecy that Judas learned about and decided he didn't want to do and then accidentally fulfilled it on his own, mm -hmm. or decided it was something he had to do, or, like, there are a million <laughs> prophecy-related tropes, and yes, I Including read about one prophecy this morning. tropes that, like, can change the prophecy. Yes, and I kind of wonder, like, did we get the story because Judas was subverting a different trope? <laughs> <laughs> Because one of the pages I landed on this morning was The Last Temptation of Christ, ah. which I, we might actually have to do a deep dive on one day, because I'm definitely going to have to watch it. But We definitely should. It's much more interesting than the people who hate it would tell you that it is. Yep. But like, we should be able to ask the question, did Judas have free will, or was Judas trying to not fulfill this prophecy when it happened and somehow it happened anyway? Or like, am I overthinking this or yes. what? But like, Judas is... No. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, you know, it. I feel like Judas is this enormous Gordian knot of uh, there's a whole bunch of intention and what did God mean by this and was this supposed to happen this way and would God ever really, like, destine someone to betray God and not... I, I don't... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of ugly stuff behind there that we really should talk about more. Yeah. Or at least some. Yes. Judas, I think, always gets a bad rap and... It's more complicated than we give credit. Yeah, like if you're destined to do something, is it really your fault? Right? Can you really be held yeah. completely responsible if it was your destiny? Or like, was God? That's like in, in the Judas when Judas did it, and therefore God is Judas. Which, oh gracious, there's a level of heresy I don't think I've actually <laughs> accomplished before. Okay then. <laughs> no, but it's like the Stormrunner. Part of what the Stormrunner struggles with is like what the Stormrunner is. It's from the, like, Rick Riordan who did the, like, Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson and stuff, but, like, then is, like, presents all of these other, like, mythology stories, which is beautiful, and so the Stormrunner is one of those from Mayan mythology, and I believe, and it's this, like, wrestling with, like, the destiny of this character, like, if the character is destined yes. to do this thing, how does he stop from doing it? And, like, where is the space of accountability and responsibility and inevitability? Yeah. yeah. So I am not necessarily suggesting that this particular reading is the one that you should base all of your thoughts of Judas on. Because, like, there's a bunch of other stuff in the Bible about you know. that. But, you know, it, mental note. Think about that more. So. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for Pentecost with our special guest, Dr. Jacob Rapp. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H, -C -H -C -H, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our full guest episodes and interviews, Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Phobiscum. Phobiscum.